Think about how higher education is currently organized and now try to think how it could go beyond disciplinary specializations, where locally situated scholars, workers, artists, activists, community-based practitioners and associations contribute to education through participatory approaches. What can we learn from engaging with them? In what ways can their voice enrich classroom learning and bring meaning to academic quests? These are the questions that the International Institute for Asian Studies and the Humanities Across Borders program are trying to answer. Hello and thank you for joining me on today's podcast where we will be addressing how one can incorporate an alternative model for academic development within humanities. I'm joined today by Dr. Philippe Pakem, Dr. Artie Kalra and Oriah Shonan. But as always, let me have the guests introduce themselves. Philippe, shall we start with you? Hello, my name is Philippe Pekam. I'm the director of the International Institute for Asian Studies uh, here in Leiden in the Netherlands. And uh, yeah, I'm an historian by training and I have been involved in uh, setting up a number of projects, including the humanities across borders. So hello, I'm Arti Kolra. I'm a social anthropologist of South India. I've worked with um, artisans in, and especially weavers in South India. I'm now uh, working at the International Institute of Asian Studies as the academic director of the Humanities Across Borders program. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to be at this What If Education podcast. Welcome. And Oriya, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me here. Uh, my name is Oriya Shaunan. Now I'm studying in Master Degree of Art program in Social Science, Ethnicity and Development on Chiang Mai University. And I used to be researcher assistant uh, on the project Living in and with the Forest on Humanity Across Border. Yes. Great. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Before we begin, I think it would be a good uh, idea to let the listeners out there know who or what is International Institute for Asian Studies and where does humanities across borders fit in and how does it differ from traditional educational models? Who would like to take this question? Okay, well, um, the International Institute for Asian Studies is uh, an interesting species, I would say, because it was created in 1994 with the idea of rethinking the way to study or to engage with uh, what we call Asia. And it was devised very much as a facilitating platform and not as a cluster group of scholars on working on Asia. A meeting ground, but also uh, anyone really engaged in Asia, uh, from Asia, it has both a national and an international mandate. It is always based on collaboration. It is within the academic fr uh, environment framework. It's a postgraduate institute, but it has its own autonomy in setting up its own uh, activities, projects, etc. And uh, IES in the last few years has been, I think, uh, focusing its attention on facilitating a number of activities around five, I would say, functions, broad functions. One, of course, is research, supporting research on, in, with 
Asia or Asian context in the world, but also on facilitating educational program, including HAB, uh, not just educational programs taking place at university, but also forms of uh, pedagogy, educational uh, models uh, based on new forms of collaboration. And IAS is also supporting activities pertaining to what we call communication and dissemination of knowledge in regard to Asia. It is also very much involved in building new platforms, new networks, new communities on a number of topics related again to Asia in the world. And, and finally, it is increasingly also engaged in directly reaching out to uh, what we call the community or, or different as, uh, groups and, and, and social segments beyond the academic one. So within this very broad, uh, you know, with this broad array of, of functions, IS uh, has been a, quite a pioneering institution in setting up programs that have crystallized into things that continue on their own volition. In the case of HAB, it is creating a collaborative platform across many continents in the way of rethinking knowledge with a humanistic approach. How is it different from other educational models? Well, just for IS, I could say that, uh, I mean, there is a, it, it, there's a great, I would say, almost luxury in that uh, we have uh, an institution which is a national institution, it's a public institute, and that has this capacity to really engage at different level uh, with different um, uh, players or actors. And in that sense, I think it is uh, quite unique. Unfortunately, uh, we don't see so many counterparts to IES elsewhere, and in particular in Asia. And actually, that's one of the objectives of HAB, which is to facilitate the, the growth of similar open platforms uh, in different, uh, you know, educational, academic and community uh, contexts. I think uh, the most important thing about the way we look at knowledge production in, in this program is that we begin with what we know, not with what we don't know. And... I think that's very important because once we start looking at what we know, we look around, we situate ourselves, we see what is in front of us, behind us, in the context in which we live, we look at ourselves, we look at the relationships we are having around us, and we learn from that. We start with that. We see that as uh, something that will nourish us to learn more and more in, at different levels. And this, you know, uh, we are calling it situated learning or uh, experiential pedagogies, which draw inspiration from already existing modes of being in the world, like people when artisans or uh, writers um, and so on, activists, environmental activists, who have certain ways of doing things, which look at the world around you, and then you try to make sense of it, you make some meaning of it and then link it to the wider global processes around you. And it's just as simple as that. What we see, what other people are already doing, uh, which we tend to forget when we look at textbooks and when we are inside the classroom. These are some of the pedagogies which we have experimented with in the last four years since uh, 2016 when we first got the grant from the Mellon Foundation for the Humanities Across Borders program. And now in the second phase uh, of this grant, 
along with our 19 or 20 partners, IAS is now working towards institutionalizing this program. Like, for example, Chiang Mai University, from where Oraya comes from, has, has a long tradition, a two-decade-long tradition of working with communities, and specifically the Karen community, um, the Hinlad Nai community, and she will tell you more about them, where she did the research as part of our program. So we learn from Chiang Mai, we learn from our partners in Africa, we learn from our partners in India, and we hope that in the next five years, we would be able to have a kind of uh, critical global curriculum that we could co-teach and co-share. But that's uh, still a long way ahead. And Oraya, for you, you're now doing your master's at another university, although it's a partner university, I hear. Is, is, how is that different from when you were over here? In Thai, have a formal education, right? And informal education. And I mean, formal education in Thai, like when you go to the school or the university, you're just studying in the room and listen your professor or teacher, yes. And you just, okay, just listen. But when I go to the field work in formal education, I just go, in this case, in the current community. Like, you go to this community, you go to sleep with them, eat with them, go to the field, go to plant the rice, go to do everything that they do, you know, and... I think this is very different from the formal education. And you you said it's different from the Netherlands. I think the Netherlands is a new experience for me. I can identify them like informal <laughs> informal education too. These are real people, you know. This is a real thing that I listen. It's a real thing that I touch. I feel it something. Do you have a particular example that you would like to share with the audience from the methods, the HIV methods that you've experienced and that, you know, just to give a bit of a bigger picture of... Okay. Uh, First time I am internship and I, my, my teacher sent me to the current community. And after that, after bachelor degree, my teacher said, you must go to the Netherlands and join with this experience. <laughs> okay, uh, okay, thank you. Uh, when I go to the Netherlands, it's a short school experience. Just five days to training to me, bring me to around Leiden University and, and they teach me everything that they can. And this workshop is like a tool to help me understand them and can observe them. Like I can compare the different things from the community in the forest and the city in the Netherlands, you know. It's really different place, different weather, different culture, and they can talk. I mean, H-A-B, they, they can talk like, okay, I need this, they will go, okay, this one, this one, we can talk. But in Thai, sometimes Thai people 
don't talk. Yeah, don't explain. Don't explain thing. In the in the project, they have a session card. You must write a session card when you go to the field. That's why they train me. You know, like when what is you see, what is you learn, what is you uh, you touch in the feeling in the picture, the feeling in when you talk to people, something like that. Uh, that's Saturday market, right? In the lighting, and they go to the markets and bring me to observe observation, and I see uh one people like a grandma and grandpa, <laughs> yeah. And I just oh, can I take a photo with you guys? And they oh okay yes, and I think this is a good opportunity to talk with them, and I. Go to there and uh, what is this? They they where hold the fish in the hand and I just said can what is this? And they do you wanna try? Uh, okay, then give it to me and very funny. And I think it's Netherlands people is very nice. Okay, thank you. So you have Leiden University that's attached to your um model i would say or at least a part of it how much resistance did you have to deal with to get where you are or are you still experiencing it and is there a way around it for others to perhaps you know follow suit uh yes it's a good uh, question <laughs> uh well we have to yeah the, the whole idea of this project is very much to to establish a link between the existing university environment, such as Leiden University, in, for instance, and these communities, these groups, including their own surrounding communities, in terms of knowledge production, knowledge making, knowledge sharing, and etc. So that means addressing uh, directly or indirectly structural issues, uh, which have to do with, for instance, um, disciplinary fragmentation of knowledge, or also the, in, in a larger context, the, the separation uh, between uh, what is supposed to be considered as academic and not. Obviously, um, it is complicated, but uh, the good thing is that we find a number of people, individuals uh, in general, who understand the need for the university to re-anchor itself in its civic function. And that's, I think, a big challenge for all universities, especially in the world we are living in uh, today. And and I think the Leiden University, I mean, at least the people who are now in charge are very much aware of that. As I said, a number of individuals within the university are very much involved or supporting IAS. And beyond that, we have a direct collaboration for this program with Le the Leiden University College, uh, which somehow has a bit more room for rethinking pedagogical uh, educational model. Okay. And from a cultural perspective, how's, how welcoming is your approach from other cultures? Because you are trying to transfer knowledge, not only in a well, European country. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, I mean, the question would be why the Mellon Foundation chose IAS to undertake this, this kind of program. And, and, and there you can see that somehow this uh, institute, because of its very inclusive and open platform, uh, has been able to facilitate the sharing of knowledge 
whilst at the same time acknowledging the multi-centrality of its production. We work always collaboratively. We never undertake anything by ourselves alone. So the whole philosophy of this program is very much, as Arti was mentioning, um, to really embed this process of, of knowledge production and sharing within the local context in a situated f way. And, and as a result, therefore, knowledge becomes meaningful and civically relevant for everyone who is involved. So we recognize the multicentrality of knowledge and yet also its universality uh, when it comes to, to asking the questions, basically. Yeah, that's a good point. On the website of Humanities Across Borders, it says, Ours is a movement in the humanities that sets out to propose an alternative model for academic development for students, faculty and administrators. Is there a one-size-fits-all model or is this something that you um, adapt as you go along constantly? So one important point is that it's not just with scholars not just with faculty. It also includes administrators. So in conventional collaborations, it's usually the administrator's role is only to just sign the agreement between two scholars and then just to facilitate uh, within a single discipline. Whereas in Humanities Across Borders, the administrators are equally stakeholders um, of this program. And I think that's very critical. And, and every institution has a different model. So, for example, in Chiang Mai University, there is a vice president for community engagement. And faculty have possibility of uh, doing work in the community and then gain some points for uh, advancement. Similarly, in Africa, we have some partners in uh, University of Gaston Berger in Senegal. They have uh, an idea of a lab of a community lab where multiple disciplinary scholars work with the local community around certain themes. So uh, that's the interesting bit about our partnerships. Our partnerships involve institutions that are willing to embed themselves, as Philippe had mentioned. And so the role of the administrator is as important as the role of the scholar who is engaged in knowledge production. HAP's focus is on community-engaged or situated learning pedagogies. Have you participated in any of these events? If so, what was your role and what did you learn? So um, Humanities Across Borders has a number of collaborative education formats, uh, as we call them. You know, they've already been experimented by IS in various contexts, especially the urban context, which has been already working on multi-stakeholder roundtables, which take place in situ or in the uh, urban uh, setting that they are discussing the issue around. And also IS has already been working with graduate schools where those graduate schools don't take place in universities, but inside special settings like they had the school in Kyoto, in the city of Kyoto, or we had a school again in Chiang Mai where we looked at um, a graduate school on craft where students from all over the world came. So uh, IS was already experimenting with these collaborative education formats where students and faculty come from all over the world and come together in a new learning context. So you go to the learning context rather than to bring the learning context into your classroom. 
these kind of experiential education formats were already being tried out by IAS. And at HAB, we, we took them and we started experimenting with them with all our partners in different geographies. So we held workshops. For example, we did a writing and a reading workshop in Chennai where we invited um, filmmakers, artists, young scholars, young photographers, in addition to um, environmental activists who came together and we discussed the question of so many other issues in a very open atmosphere. And we got uh, a kind of taste of how you think and write critically when all these multiple perspectives are brought to the table. For example, another one we did on rice. So bringing together farmers as well as consumers of rice and also local people who want to preserve uh, the various varieties of rice to see what can you do about uh, a certain ecology in Assam where uh, there are communities that are having kind of ethnic conflict between them, but how rice can become a medium of conversation and a shared value which brings people together, together at a table so you can talk about various other issues as well. And so how can we learn from these models where you can then not only bring other perspectives, multiple perspectives, but also to see how you can continue conversations when mostly these conversations always break down when it comes to uh, multiple ideologies or political interests and, and so on. And were there any results after the conversations? Because that's always the question, right? You always have conversations, but then no, no one ever finds out what the results are. Well, I, I could say that um, whatever HAB is doing is really based on what people have been doing. We are not inventing anything. In fact, we are very much just putting into conversation, into contact uh, initiatives that have been developed locally by academic activists or civic people or groups. So um, somehow they have developed their own ecology of, of knowledge uh, development, knowledge sharing uh, themselves. And uh, to some extent, some have been able to institutionalize this, some less so. And that's the, one of the challenges of, of, of the, the program is to help these initiatives to be more than just individualized, localized, uh, isolated uh, initiatives. So what we have in mind is, first of all, I would like to say we don't want to quantify uh, impacts because we can't, it doesn't work like that. The testimony of Oraya is a good one. It's how can you quantify uh, what she wants to do in future? But the point is really much to um, build a critical mass of these collaborations and being able then to develop the instruments that make them accessible and reproducible potentially uh, for institutions and people. And also, uh, even before that, for them to think that it is possible to do that. And that's, I think, the biggest problem, bigger challenge. In many ways, people are entrapped in their own uh, specializations. And also, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there is this implicit hierarchies that are there that, uh, for instance, don't recognize, for instance, the knowledge of somebody who works on the streets as opposed to uh, a big urban planner. Everyone has something to contribute in, in that sense. So it is repositioning uh, also the university as a much more socially responsive and accountable body within the social framework, social context. So, um, yeah, I don't know to what extent we will achieve 
revolutionary transformative uh, solutions, but at least we want to push this experiment. And we've been very lucky that the, a major foundation has given us the chance. And we've been also lucky to find responsive people everywhere, including in Leiden. So with all this in mind, eventually you have to show something. How do you do that? Do you document it? Do you do videos? Do you do podcasts? What's, what's the plan? How do you make sure that everybody else has access to your results? Yeah, um, that's a good point. I mean, so what we've done is we've kind of anchored our uh, engagement through the idea of building a curriculum and a, a humanist model of curriculum. Now, this curriculum is grounded around four syllabi tracks. These four syllabi tracks are food, which is something, you know, universal, universally valuable and meaningful, place or placemaking, um, craft or craft making, and uh, uh, words or words as we use them, words in different contexts. So these are anchoring points which allow us to enter into methodological engagement, knowledge production, and eventually dissemination. Most of our work has been, uh, you know, going to a place, talking to people, walking. Walking is one of our most important pedagogies. Videos, um, photographs, uh, listening is yet another. Uh, we have built a digital storytelling tool online where we use these multimedia assets. These then become the elements of conversation. So many young people, like Oraya in Chiang Mai, we have young scholars and early career faculty who have been using this digital storytelling tool to do field work and to actually document uh, their field work. So, for example, um, from Mali, we have some students uh, who sent us photographs of cowhide designs from West Africa. Each design has a specific word, is related to a certain uh, lineage of linguistic usage and has some relationship with communities. So we start with a word and it takes you to migration of communities. It takes you to pastoral communities. Um, and this digital storytelling tool is one of the ways in which we want to eventually build a repository of oral histories and narratives, uh, which will then be used by our partners for teaching and learning. Araya, what do you use? What, um, how, do you, how are you contributing? I don't know, are you doing verbal communications or are you sending photos just to document your findings? Uh, I think first, the communication is very easy to talk with them. I have a lot of the picture when they go to work, stay in the home, do the food and have a lot of the video and I write a report, like a database for my teacher, the everyday life of them. Uh, I save it on OneDrive, <laughs> email, and key on the word. Sometimes, you know, go to the session card on the Humanity Across Border website, and my teacher will analyze them again. Okay, so I'm sure we've touched on a couple of these points already, but maybe 
in case we haven't, um, what does the future of HAB look like? Yeah, I, I haven't really thought about it because I've been so, uh, you know, concerned about how we get it off the ground, especially now during the pandemic. Yeah, it's a kind of a, a dream I have and a vision or, yeah, the dream is to, to see that in a classroom that we break all the barriers and uh, i give you one example. When we, we had a conference and uh, a faculty from Myanmar, Mandalay University, we were having a discussion on uh, humanities across borders. And for her, the main important point was that, look, we go to the community as and when we like. We have the resources. We just call them and we land up on their door. And they accept us. They don't take even, not necessary, even appointments. And we found that when we had to do the reading light in school, we had to take so many appointments with everybody here. But when we go in Asia or Africa, there are no appointments. Anyway, that's not the point. The point was that they cannot come. The university doors are not open to them. There's a guard in every university, in every university that I've been to, there is a security gate. I think HAB is just creating these border crossing spaces, as we call them. A curriculum is also a border crossing space. And I hope that we have more such spaces and people can go in and out uh, and, and see that this is a place for them as well, not just for scholars or uh, experts, but also for people who live around the university and not just the physical aspect of the university, but also the substantive knowledge production aspect. So, yeah, my dream is that we have more and more such spaces. The greatest challenges so far... Do you have any that you have learned from and can move on from or it's still blocking you perhaps? I think the greatest challenges to me are the the, the way institutions are set up and, and the difficulty to change uh, mindsets framed by institutional models. Uh, to me, it's a, it's a big challenge. I mean... Everywhere uh, in the world or just in specific parts of the world? Uh, okay, I was especially thinking of universities and academia. There are many segments of societies we are all involved in, but I find one of the most conservative and difficult to, to change is the university. Uh, and yet it is necessary that it happens. And, and you want to do it with people, not by excluding. You need to do, be inclusive. So it's a fascinating topic. And the university is, uh, as a model, is, is a recent model in, in, in human history. And as it is framed today, it is very much the European Humboldtian model, as we call it, since the 19th century, 18th, 19th century, Enlightenment, etc. Europe claimed that it, it knew everything better than the others. And also, um, uh, it was a much more aristocratic, uh, you know, um, society. Uh, now we are living in a different world, including with the the new new forms of of uh, communication. So everything is much more accessible and open now. So how the university can adjust, adapt to these challenges without uh, losing its, I think, its its relevance and especially its civic relevance. And for you, do you have any additional challenges? The the main challenge is really to, as Philippe mentioned, uh, just talking to people with a certain mindset. I mean, we we are experiencing that in every uh, in every respect in the world today. But scholars, particularly, you know, there's a kind of uh, academic 
mindset, which is uh, driven by publications, which is driven by this whole machinery of the university, which allows a certain role for advancement and so on and so forth. And so you have to be really uh, a scholar who's kind of somebody on the outside with a spirit of opposition or a you know, spirit of inquiry and the ability to really be free from all this and yet be within it because you cannot participate in this education process without the university. We are not saying that we throw the baby with the bathwater, but there's a need and uh, for individuals who have the courage to stand and be kind of alert to changes, alert to ossifications, alert to so many um, uh, things around us, which we are living in a dynamic world and we cannot uh, become complacent about knowledge production. We need to be alert about all these things and not become comfortable through the processes that academe provide for us. So finding such individuals has been a challenge. Yeah, what I, I would like to say that within these very heavy structures that are universities, there's a lot of great people and great knowledge. So it is trying to find new spaces that can enable them to cultivate some aspects of their knowledge and, and engagement that are not always uh, valued properly. I think if we can uh, uh, help doing that through HAB and, uh, you know, if, uh, if, if these spaces can really take place and be acknowledged by the universities as important for them to, uh, to change and to move, uh, you know, beyond their, their traditional uh, role, then I think um, there's a lot of potential. So if this can be harnessed somehow, uh, I think that uh, through HAB, that would be a big achievement. Okay, I'm going to bring in my futuristic angle, which I like to do into the show. So bear with me. So let's say it's 20 years from now when hopefully all the technical restrictions are an afterthought or at least within education and we have the ability to teleport experts into classrooms to engage with students and teachers alike on a day-to-day -day basis. No matter where and when, expert advice has become open and accessible to anyone when given the platform. The question is, do you think that this form of accessibility to knowledge and expert opinion will be valuable? Because how can one validate such expert opinions if they are so many, and in this future, where is the filter for good information versus bad information? You know, it's the difference between looking at a map or asking somebody on the street for the knowledge of where to go. I, I feel that people will need to ask, will need to have a connection, look into somebody's eyes and say, and get a sense of the other person's, the body of that person, the direction that he say, okay, go left, not right. Or, you know, you need that connection. Of course, it's all there. You can pick it up even online. So I can, I can see a whiff of that already. But um, how many of us uh, would lo love it if somebody says, come, let me show you? But if even if it was an, an uh, AI, for instance, then you don't necessarily know whether you have that. Well, it's not necessarily a personal connection, right? Can you trust that expert opinion? Who filters that 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 um, knowledge, whether it's accurate or whether it's not accurate? 
Well, I think that's the role of the university, and that's it goes back to uh, the big challenge of the university is to give sense, give meaning to things. And then uh, uh, if we have experts being AI or, or in flesh experts, I personally, I don't like the word expert because that creates already some strange uh, sense of, uh, you know, unaccountability socially. But uh, if the university is able to to uh, generate uh, people who specialize in any forms of knowledge, but who do it in a more, again, in a more uh, socially embedded, responsible way, then uh, I, I would hope that uh, this kind of big dichotomy and this risk of uh, being governed by the uh, how do you call it this this um, this algorithm or something that think for us uh, become the norm and obviously this is the challenge and it is also clear that uh, there are some there's some trends that would push us towards this direction the economic system as it is today goes always towards more con concentration monopolization and we have to build capacities to resist this impulse And, and again, that's where I think the role of the university is to generate people who can uh, specialize, keeping a certain distance from this, this, this uh, potential, um, I think, uh, dangerous uh, trend. I, I feel that the trend is, is digital, mm. is AI. Mm. People are trying to make algorithms for everything. Mm. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, do you even think about it? that that might be a direction that you will have to go into and how would you, you know, co incorporate that? And the same thing for Araya, or at least when she's doing her research, will that change perhaps 20 years from now? And will that change be welcomed or not? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> this is a current people who live in the forest, right? But they, they be like us, okay? And... They can talk Thai, and just a few Karen can speak Thai well. And in this community, they, the villager in this always go to outside. I mean, or go to the market, go to the, do the thing that they want. They will, you know, shopping, order the online shopping, you know, like like us. But I think they know how to live with the forest and they know how to live with the outside too because um, they're really smart, you know, <laughs> really, very smart. They know how to use it. I mean, the information on the internet or the Google or the Twitter, they know it good, know it bad and how to choose good one to apply or adapt in their life. They will talk a lot about electric or the internet or everything that the government want to give up, something like that. They always talk and discuss about this one. Just be careful to use it, you know, because the information is really fast. You cannot know everything. Uh, what Oriah mentioned, and I think just to say that um, 
it's when we are able to make a choice, you know, when there are multiple truths or falsities, then you need to make a choice. And so how do you make that choice? Uh, I think that's what she mentioned, that people will have to make a choice. And it's the ability to make that choice that we are really looking at uh, through education uh, and through a humanist uh, model of education. How can we make that choice? And that choice that is meaningful for yourself, it will have implications. So you need to make an, uh, a choice not only for yourself, but also for uh, the society. So that's why the choice is most important. Yes, I think that's also good to bring in to, I mean, I'm sure you've already got it in your programs, but that it is an important point that you still have to have your own um, exactly. opinion. You yeah. still have to have your own choices of what information you um, pick going... and what you use and exactly. what you disseminate. It's not and just yeah. still, which you must have. Yeah. So that's what I think uh, these this programs are meant to uh, bring to the fore the diversity of, of experience and agency. People she describes, the Karen, are are completely powerless in front of so much bigger transformation taking place. So how at some point their voice can make a difference or not. So these, these are the challenges. And the question about technology, to me, it's, there's a problem because it, it becomes a, an end in itself. It becomes a, a, almost a new religion. Uh, there's a messianic approach to this technology will is it will solve everything and everything is about technology i think we need to question this first of all who will benefit from this this belief and who won't there will be always people excluded we will need to know that so how can we uh, enable again technology to be just a means an instrument and not uh, you know uh, a drive uh, that drives our life uh, in a kind of a very passive, powerless way. So, yeah, I don't know if it makes a connection. No, no, it makes a connection, yeah. And then COVID, of course, uh, threw everything in the works, right? Because uh, certain things you used to rely on and function with were not available. And then suddenly technology became your life, which was like the worst and the best thing that could have happened to certain people. Yeah, and it, it revealed also uh, the, the tension, points of tension that are at play in society. Now we know more clearly, uh, okay, uh, we can do everything virtually, but do, is that what we want? And, and who will benefit from that? Who will be left out? But now we need to know what are the, con the ultimate consequences. What was fascinating for our program ourselves is last year we were in the process of writing the proposal to the Mellon Foundation to to continue the program. And we were pretty much on set in how we would like to do it. And then the outbreak started, I mean, the, the, the lockdown. And then the foundation itself became embroiled in all this debate. And when we came up with the first proposal, they told us, okay, well, maybe now there's no, we need to change the budget because there's maybe no need to travel anymore. And we say, wait, no, we can't do that. So we need, okay, we need to incorporate uh, online when necessary, but we need to be master of this process. Luckily, a number of institutions said, wait, wait, we want to, we want people to go back to school when it will be possible, etc. And I think this again revealed the extent to which we have to be very much uh, alert. To, to these risks of falling into some trends without thinking. And I think uh, the more 
rooted level, what HAB is doing is, is very much enabling people to recognize, acknowledge different experience, different people, and, and to incorporate it so that we can think as real citizens, as inclusive citizens, and, and positioning ourselves in relation to all these different parameters. Yeah. So it's utopian maybe, but uh, we need to, I think we need to do it very much even more so now. Yeah, no, and, and also when, you know, that the pandemic uh, put a spotlight on our everydayness of our teaching, and especially this online teaching, it kind of uh, showed us the routineness of our work, and we were able to hear ourselves speak and think much more than when you do in a classroom and there's a kind of romance of going to the university or romance of having a tutorial with your uh, students and so on. But it broke all that. That romance was completely broken and you were sitting in front of your computer with disalienated, disembodied, uh, in a disembodied way trying to um, deliver your lectures. Then that spotlight becomes on what you say, how you say it and to whom you're saying it. So that's, uh, that's quite something. Well, there you have it. Another interesting view on how education could be or should be taught. Some lessons learned and hopefully some inspiration in the way you look at teaching or learning. Thank you again to my guests, Dr. Philippe Pakem, Dr. Artie Kalra and Araya Chanan. If you have any comments or questions you would like to forward to me or the guest speakers today, or if you would like to join me on one of the What If Education podcasts, please send us an email and I look forward to welcoming you on the next podcast.